Gregoire and Dan Beeston are smart enough to know better. Welcome to episode 62 of Smart Enough to Know Better, a, a podcast of science, comedy, and ignorance. I am Greg Wah. And I'm Dan Beeston. And in this episode of Smart Enough to Know Better, we will be interviewing Dr. Craig Cormick about the science of Ned Kelly. And I'll be talking about how to make steel. Now, don't shake your heads, ladies and gentlemen. The science of Ned Kelly, you well, there's no such thing as the science of Ned Kelly. <laughs> you guys are just... <laughs> hey, everyone, these guys are... Well, you know, you know what? I don't... I don't think that I like their derisive attitude. No, I'm not sure either. I don't think that. There's yeah. no need for that tone, listener. No, thank you, listener. I think, I, think, I think you'll be put in your place very soon. You know what? I'm not even going to play the interview. How dare you? No, no, I'm well, not doing it. No, no, no. If you don't I'm play not the interview. Doing it. I'm just going to ramble on about <laughs> Australian comedians. I s- Ed Cavalier. Ed Cap, what, what about? Oh, yes, he was the voice. <laughs> he was the voice. Yeah, I mean, not the voice, that was John Farnham. Farnham. Yes, so try and understand it, Dan, for God's sakes. Yeah, Ed Cavalier from a very popular Australian radio show called Get This. And other places. He's TV's Ed Cavalier, etc. Yeah, that's true. Mm. He's a bit of an Australian darling now. He is. He's very lovely. But he's a son of... He's a Brisbane son. He, this is where he grew up mm. here in the north. Oh, think of the heights we could reach one day. But get this was where I was listening to podcasts all the time. Every mm. single day a new podcast would come out. And I was like, oh, I, I could totally do that. And then I started doing it. Oh, my goodness. And that led to this nonsense. <laughs> so Ed Cavalier is sort of the grandfather of Smart Enough to Know Better? Uh, maybe the dirty old uncle. The dirty old great uncle, maybe? That's it. Fair enough. Thank you, Ed. I have been doing a bit of science this week. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Good. Uh, you may not agree. <laughs> It's not physics. Oh, it's not man. chemistry. Oh, it's biology. Oh, fine. We have time to kill. Let, let me <laughs> let me tell you about the biology I got up to this week. Oh no! I made a possum box. I mean, I didn't. I bought the possum box, right? But then I constructed it. Mm-hmm. So very manly. So you actually put a box together, and a possum now lives in it. Okay, I bought a box. <laughs> <laughs> you painted a possum on the side. I I made it look like a possum. Right. I have a possum in my roof. Mm. And it's like the best possum box ever. That's it's your roof. That's not a good thing. No. Because they spread disease, mm. full of fleas. More importantly, they love to gnaw on electrical cables mm. and start fires. And my house has burnt to the ground twice in my life. I don't need a third time. Not, not this house. Not this one. No, other houses. This one's only caught fire once, but right. that was before we bought it. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Good to know it's got a precedent. Yes. <laughs> So there's this awful little possum running around. And so plan A was call the professionals. Mm. They came out, stuck a and trap the, up in them. They're still like, oh, we'll, we'll solve your problem. And there she is, over there, when I tell you to run. Run. All right. <laughs> the possum got caught in the trap. <gasps> Yay! And then they carried him away. They're only supposed to carry him like 25 metres or something. Right. Because uh, otherwise it's bad for the possum. Oh. But the problem is the possum will just run back to the roof. Yes, yeah, where he so, lives. Yeah. It's like your house. Like someone comes into your house, drags you out of your bed in the morning, and takes you out 25 minutes away from your house and goes, now don't go back to your house. Are, are you going to stop me? No, just don't do it. Yeah. Okay, I'll just so, you saunter back inside. Did so, it saunter? Uh, Did it saunter? No, no, the guy was like, I'm supposed to take it 25 metres, but uh, we might take this little chap on a bit of a trip. Oh. 
and uh, which sounded like he was going to put his feet in little tiny concrete yeah, shoes and drop it. You do live next to the, the oceans. That'd be bad. I do. Down the pier. Take him for a little bit of a drive. A long walk off a short pier. <laughs> uh, but he's not dead. He came back. No, no, he's gone. Oh, yeah. Oh, good. Another one moved in. Oh, about a month later. Obviously, it's high real estate value for for possums. Yeah, good. So, Plan B, got myself a fake. shotgun. No, you're not, uh. not allowed to kill possums. They're right. protected species. Uh, okay. Uh, you know that would be against the law. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I tell you what, though. I drive around now and, like, you occasionally see some roadkill in the suburbs, like someone's hit a possum with their car, and I just drive past going, someone got lucky. (laughs) We we, we need more hoons in my street. (laughs) And remember, ladies and gentlemen, Dan lives in street on and and you should drive at 80 kilometres an hour down road as often as you can. Someone did that recently. Mr. Turn went off the end of the road. Only a tree stopped him from going straight into the creek. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Okay, so plan B. Yes. I got a rubber snake. Right. And put it up at the major access point uh, to the roof. Yes. And the possum went real quiet for a month or two, mm. although I think he may have figured it out. But I think that I think the snake was the reason, because it's pretty effective. Yeah. So I went up there the other day, and I'd forgotten I'd done it, almost fell off the f***ing roof. <laughs> what the f***? Oh, that's cobra! Right. Yeah. Plastic cobra! Yeah, yeah, plastic snake. So... Possum's still in there. Yep. Plan C mm. is in effect. Bought myself a possum box, filled it with apple, mm-hmm. which they love, stuck it in a tree, which they love, mm-hmm. and then got a whole bunch of mothballs and chucked them up in the ceiling, which they hate. Mm. Don't like the smell. So far, hasn't worked. Possum is still in the roof. No, he's waiting you out. Yes. Mm. But I've heard that if I get snake poo and put it in the ceiling... Uh-huh. Then poo. that might actually freak yeah. him out enough to get rid of him. Yeah. And if not, I'm going to get a python. <laughs> and I'm going to stick the python up in the roof. Yeah. So hopefully, I'll end up with a fat python. And then you'll have to get something that kills a python. And then you have to get something that kills the thing that kills the python. Then you have to get... Oh, this is going to end badly. And then you'll have like a giant elephant that's looking I up I bought there. myself a pterodactyl box. <laughs> Plan D. <laughs> so welcome to the podcast, Dr. Craig Cormick, writer of fiction and non-fiction and all-round clever person. Hello, Craig. Hello. Good morning, Dan and Greg. How are you both today? Good. Excellent. I'm pretty good. It's quite warm. <laughs> it's surprisingly warm. It is. Welcome to Queensland, where it's surprisingly warm. Now, Craig, you have written quite a few, as I said, um, fiction and non-fiction books and things, really interesting stuff about, about Mawson, and you actually went to Antarctica, which I am very, very jealous about. Especially today. <laughs> you try and all, it seems to be, uh, to write your experiences and, and explain science in, in a very personal way, it seems. Yes, that's true. I think a lot of my stuff is about moving science from the realm of the science fans across into more popular way of doing it that that often doesn't frame it as science. Yeah, and I think it's a really important way. It's sometimes the best learning is done when people don't even realise they're learning, that they they just went, oh, I enjoyed that, and they take something on board, and later on you think, aha, I tricked you into learning things. Snuck it under the the radar. (laughs) Quite right, quite right. (laughs) So your latest book that we are very lucky to know about is called Ned Kelly Under the Microscope. Now, for our listeners who aren't too sure who Ned Kelly is, who is Ned Kelly, or who was Ned Kelly? Well, we, we've got 
two Ned Kellys, really. We've got Ned Kelly, the real person, and Ned Kelly, the myth. And, and that's one of the, the issues about him. So Ned Kelly, the real person, was a bush ranger, born in 1855, roughly, in Victoria. He was hanged in 1880 after a very, very famous gun battle at Glen Rowan in northern Victoria, famous particularly because the gang wore suits of armour and it's been made into movies many, many times, the most recent with Heath Ledger. Ned Kelly is a myth. I thought the good. most recent was Iron Man 3. That was you based could, on... You could well argue that. You could well argue that. <laughs> OK. <laughs> yeah, um, Ned Kelly is a myth, a bit of a different person. He's about anti-police, anti-law, anti-society, like he's having tattooed on their arms. I've met people up in far north Queensland, for instance. I was at a Rodeo in Landrum, Cairns at Atherton last year, and the guy next to me had a Ned Kelly T-shirt and a big Ned Kelly tattoo on his arm. I said, "Uh, you're a Ned Kelly fan, are you? And he said, yeah, mate. Ned Kelly's the man. I said, oh, it's interesting, because, you know, I was down in Glen Rowan uh, last year doing some research, and he said, where? (laughs) Glen Glen Rowan, where Ned Kelly was uh, shooting out, was he? <laughs> uh, he said, you know, you know, Ned Kelly lived in Victoria, did he? <laughs> and so Ned Kelly's a whole different thing to him. Is he all right? <laughs> so that's it's sort of almost it's like um, Che Guevara shirts. Young people, especially, wear Che Guevara shirts and have no idea what he stood for. Yep. Exactly the, same. Um, the best, actually, actually, one of those things. Uh, person I know heard this happen, so one one generation removed here. But walking down the road, a young man's wearing a Che Guevara shirt. What do you call them? the the um, oh, the political party. They're basically, the the extreme, the extreme left, like, kind of like the DLP kind of people still. And when they sort of said to him, you're like, "Hey, would you like to be part of our our group?" Then they said, "Like, what, what do I look like? A communist to you?" And you're like, uh, "You're kind of wearing a Che Guevara shirt, so you kind of." You know, anyway, yeah. The point of that is, people don't seem to. They made Ned Kelly into a status symbol. Yeah, or a tattoo. Or a tattoo, yes. Now, but- there's actually a scientific study they did in South Australia. They went through all the morgues and looked at tattoos on people's bodies, the dead bodies, and they found that if you had a Ned Kelly tattoo on your body, you were at a higher risk of dying from a violent crime. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, hang on. That seems back to front. <laughs> it is. That's causation, not correlation. That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> more likely to be involved in diet crime, you're more likely to have a Nick Kelly tattoo than any other tattoo. Now, now what I need to know is, what can, I, what can I tattoo onto my body to keep myself alive for longer? Like, is it like a little, a little pixie or a fairy or something like that? Or, you know, what, what? Shea Guevara, it turns out. <laughs> So it's so is it, there's this kind of myth of Ned Kelly and there's the real Ned Kelly. Now, we, as I said, we've seen everything. I mean, Yahoo Serious did a movie about Ned Kelly, which wasn't very well received somewhere in the 90s. It wasn't uh, very well delivered. But, <laughs> and so your book, the Ned Kelly Under the Microscope, it, you're going to look at the science of Ned Kelly. So, so what sort of stuff are you actually looking at? Okay, so primarily a lot of it's framed around the identification of the corpse. So it's a real interesting history about the Ned Kelly's head and body being separated and trying to be put back together. So to give you a quick overview, okay, Ned Kelly hanged in 1880. Um, his head was then they made a death mask of his head and he was buried in the cemetery area of the old Melbourne jail. What's a death mask? Yeah, you know, a, lot, a lot of famous convicted prisoners had death masks made, and there's a whole row of them down. You look in the, the museum, the old Melbourne jail, inside the jail. So, it's, so I've, actually, I've actually seen that mask. I've actually seen, it's like basically plaster of Paris poured over the face at the moment of death, or just after death, and it's sort of his face sort of oh, sleeping. Wow. He looks like he's sleeping. That's right. And it was, it was very common at the time to do death masks, and we're just at the tail end of phrenology in this point. Mm. Where oh, right. <laughs> up on bumps and heads, but they were still intrigued to have the death mask cast to see what they could learn about the, the characters in life. And you know, Ned Kelly's death mask, there were a lot of copies of it made, and you do exactly that. They either chop the head off or they sit you through a cabinet, oh, wow. shape head or hair, put a thin string across the centre of the head and put plaster Paris, paint it over. Wow. And then 
string through and you get two halves of a mould and they make marks out of the mould. Oh, so, so they actually <laughs> deca- decapitated him for this process? That's uncertain whether he was decapitated for the process or he was sat through one of the cabinets where you sit on a chair and the head sort of sticks through. But what is known as death mask were made and lots of copies made. So we, we need that as a part of our evidence. So, OK, we've got a death mask, Nick mm. Kelly. His skull may or may not have been put into the coffin with him, but there's stories that it was used as a paperweight. There are stories that it was buried. There are stories <laughs> that used to track down him. Then in 1920s, they were excavating Old Melbourne Jail and they dug up the old graveyard. They thought all the coffins would have been long ago rotted away, but they weren't. All these skeletons emerged. Now, a lot of a lot of bystanders are now waiting and watching because they wanted to get a souvenir of Ned Kelly. And mm. there was an MK engraved in the wall. So when the coffins were burst open by the digger, everybody piled in and was grabbing bones and grabbing things and running left and right. There's <laughs> a guy holding up a skull. Look, I've got Ned Kelly's skull. And that was the authorities. And they packaged up all the bones and things, and they took them off to Pentridge Prison to rebury them at Pentridge. Mm. Promptly forgot where they buried them. So it was a bit of time. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Kelly Skull. So Nick Kelly Skull went from institution to institution, ended up with Australian Institute of Anatomy for a while, then it was passed on the Australian Museum for a while, and then brought back to the old Melbourne jail, where in 1978... It was stolen. So the skull had sat next to the death mask in a display case. In 1978, someone broke into the, the case and took the skull. No one noticed at the end of the day. Wow. A farmer called Tom Baxter, living right up the northwest of Australia, said he had the skull. He wouldn't say how he got it, hmm. coming into possession. And he actually had it hidden in a Tupperware container in a hollow log by a creek on his property <laughs> in the Kimber. And that river flooded the log sometimes. It's got a bit worse the wear. Oh. And he held it for a long time. People were lobbying to give it back, but he'd say, no, it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I've got to hang on to it. It need, needs a proper burial, blah, blah, blah. In then Tupperware. We... Sorry? <laughs> a proper burial in Tupperware. Yeah, in a log. <laughs> As he wanted, stipulated yeah. in, his, in his will. <laughs> I, want to, well, I want to stay fresh for 20 years, my Tupperware container. <laughs> so skip forward a bit now to turn of the century, and Pentridge Prison gets sold off to developers. And down in Melbourne, Pentridge is now, they've got sort of little bits of... A bit like Boggo Road Jail. Mm. In Brisbane. Where you have the, the fascia of the prison and lots of con- construction development all around it. Mm. So prison was being sold off the land to make uh, luxury apartments. But they've kept the front end of the prison. Anyway, as they were developing and digging and building, they started uncovering bones. <laughs> oh, what's this? So... They went back and looked through the archives and the records and they found a hand-drawn map showing where these rows of reburied bodies were that were the ones from Old Melbourne Jail. And so the question was, we might have Ned Kelly's body in here somewhere. Now, it took quite a bit of time to make full excavation and dig up all the bones, but the question was then, if we've got the skeleton, can we reunite it with the skull and get the whole body? <laughs> so Tom Baxter was persuaded to hand the skull in, and he did. He brought the skull back in and handed it over to the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine, who did most of the matching. Then the challenge was, amongst these dozens and dozens of bodies, how do you match, one, the skull with the skeleton? Yes. Then how prove it could be Ned Kelly's. So we have to use lots of different signs here. So we've got to do anthropology, we've got to do forensics, we do craniofacial superimposition. So I was that was gonna ask you about that was that was my thought on it. If if you could tell you could check you could check the skull if you can do that craniofacial rebuilding stuff. I've sort of seen it done with very, very ancient skulls, like talking yep. fossils. Yes indeed. The first thing is look at the skull and do some craniofacial superimposition. And they looked at the skull and they ran it across all the death masks they had records of or copies of or 
etc. Mm. And they narrowed it down to two. It could have been Ned Kelly's or it could have been the murderer, Frederick Deeming's. Now, Frederick Deeming was buried right next to Ned Kelly. Uh-huh. In that. <laughs> could have been one of the two. Okay, They're so dead that's... ringers. Oh, very good. Thank very you very much. <laughs> so then we turn to... We look at some anthropology, we go through the bones, we look for injuries on the bones that could be consistent with those Ned Kelly sustained in the gunfight, looking at the records, match them up, and we think we've got a skeleton that could be the right one here over here. And strangely enough, most of the bones are still there because we thought all the bones had been stolen. Mm. So that's Mm. history too. So how can we then match the skull with the skeleton? So next we move to DNA analysis. DNA, yes, of course. The thing about the skull is because we're sitting in a Tupperware container, flooded, so on, there's almost no DNA in it. In hand, it could be lots of damage or, or contamination of the DNA. Mm. So DNA is taken from the skeleton. So we've got that DNA. How do we match with the skull? There's no work of DNA in it. So they put out an appeal for anybody who might have any Ned Kelly relics to bring them forward. So first of all, they looked at you know the sash and the boots that he'd had. Mm-hmm. Some of the blood might render up some DNA. Oh, yes, okay. Direct match, but that wasn't what didn't prove fruitful. One of the guys come forward after public appeal had a tooth. <laughs> oh, and Wow grandfather had taken that day of the raiding of the graves and he'd been taken to school saying there's a Ned Kelly's tooth in a little handmade wooden box. They said, a long shot, but let's see. And they fitted it in the skull and it fitted perfectly. Oh, <laughs> wow. Uh-huh. So it's extremely rare to get a, a tip because they're, each, they're so individual, the shape. So mm. they extracted mm. it and cross-sectioned it and said, yep, that tooth belonged to that skull. Mm. It can get DNA out of teeth because enamel protects the DNA inside them. So yeah, enamel's very hard. And we're able to get the DNA and look across at the same DNA from the skeleton. And then they got a living descendant of Ned Kelly's matriarchal line. So they can match the mitochondrial DNA. Mitochondrial so DNA. Wow. Okay. Women, a, a line through the women's area. And if you look at a cell like an egg and the nucleus is the yolk, if you're trying to get a nucleus match, you could do that from the blood, something that had been Ned Kelly's, that didn't work. Mm. So then you go living descendant and the mitochondria swims around in the white part of the egg was a relative match. And having done that, they determined that the skeleton they had was definitely Ned Kelly's, but the skull was not. Oh, Now, that's the oh, part no. of the cell where you can tell whether they're a Jedi or not, too. Is that right? <laughs> is that what I... Like, was, was Ned Kelly a Jedi is what the question I'm asking. <laughs> Find me a Jedi so I can get a DNA match. <laughs> that's, that's our job for this year. There you go. <laughs> 2014. Of course, since a lot of people put that on their statistical form and we could work back. Because this is about matching. <laughs> it's really about saying this is, it's saying you discount all the things that are not. Mm, you say, yes. you know, we, we discount the chance of this not being. So then the question is, well, who the hell's skull is it? Mm, mm. It's probably Frederick Deeming, probably, because, you know, he was the other death mask match, but you can't say for sure until you do a DNA analysis. Now, the only DNA analysis we can get from Frederick Deeming is from an ancestor of his, but they're all dead. So you have to get permission to dig up a, a body in the UK, <laughs> yep. do a DNA match, and see if that's a go, and that's, that's ongoing. Uh-huh. Now, they also discovered in the history of it that a few other people have since said, I've got Ned Skull, no, I've got Ned Skull, and they've shown pictures on TV or whatever. And they can look at the picture. It's like a hydra. The, multi, <laughs> the multi-headed monster of Ned Kelly. That's the myth of Ned Kelly, that's, I'm hoping. That's, I want to watch that movie. That's the multi-headed myth, that's right. They're important to understand that. That's where they come from. But the <laughs> next at the top of Ned's spine, there was a little square of skull, which showed that after he was hanged, they chopped open the back of the skull to check that his neck had snapped properly. Oh. Had this figure of weights and tables and measures with the rope width and length and the weight of the body to make sure when they hanged that they were hanged properly and died quickly rather mm. than stayed on the rope kicking and struggling. Mm. That had been performed to Ned Kelly. So if somebody does hold up the skull, 
say, I've got Ned's skull, a small section will be chopped out of the back of it ah. until it's identification that it's Ned's. And so have we actually found Ned Kelly's skull? No. Nope. So it still have not been found yet. So we, we've got his skeleton but not his skull. Got his skeleton and it's now been reburied with the, in the family's grave in Greta in northern New South Wales encased in concrete so nobody can rob it. <laughs> wow. It's 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 really incredible. So we're still on the lookout now. So if listeners happen to have a weird skull with a bit cut out the back of it, it could be very useful. It might be in your skull cabinet right now. Look around your scullery in the teeth. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what I thought it meant. <laughs> you get a lot of trouble. Okay, so basically this is still an ongoing investigation then. And is it just important because it's an interesting bit of forensics or is it important to Australia, do you think? Well, it's important to both Australia and it's important to the family. We can't discount the, you know, the family have had the, you know, the weight of Ned Kelly hanging over the, them for over 100 years and that to shape the impact and, and being able to give him um, a proper... But also as a, as a national icon, and, and here's the funny thing about Ned Kelly, is that so many people think they own Ned Kelly one way or the other. <laughs> yes. Whether they have an interest in him, he, he has become a national symbol, a national icon. Um, people call him, you know, Australia's prime folk hero, and, and he represents many, many different things to different people, and people interpret his history differently. Mm. And he means, and, and either he was a murderer who, you know, shot down policemen in cold blood, mm. or was oppressed by the police, and many things in between. And the more we find out scientifically, it gives us a bit more certainty as well about what type of person he was, understanding the context. So there was a lot of archaeology done around Glen Rowan in the end, and that shows a bit more, gives us more information about how the battle there took place, by where the bullets were found and how they were fighting, how they were hiding. And so the Australian Nuclear Science Technology Organisation did analysis of one of the suits of armour to try and find out how it was made. Mm. The prior theory had been that it was actually made by blacksmiths who were sympathetic to the Kellys. Doing analysis of the armour, they found it was not heated to the proper level that a blacksmith would have heated it to. So it would have been heated on a bush forge and probably built by the gang. So that level of sympathisers they had in the towns and cities may have been overrated. Right, yeah. So was it actually effective armour? That's always wondered, because, I mean, that, that very iconic, the big bucket on his head with the slit in the front and, and the, the plate on his... Like, he had plates on his chest and his legs, I think. And that's about it. Not, not much over the legs, over the top of the thighs, I guess. Ah, oh, top of the thighs, OK. And so well, wasn't it, a, I mean, it, it, was it an effective piece of armour? Well, yes and no. I mean, it didn't save Joe Byrne's life, and he, he actually got killed um, of members, Joe Byrne died in the end because a bullet went between that little gap between the main bit of armour across the chest and body mm. and the leather gap holding the bit under it. Right through that little gap and hit him in the groin he bled to death. Oh. Ah, that's the Robocop trick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no one ever shoots Robocop in the jaw. These guys, yeah. these Glen Rowan cops knew what they were doing. <laughs> there, were, there were some parts of the armour were extremely clever in that it was, it was really strongly bulletproof. Mm. Very heavy to wear, very slow to, to walk around in. Restricted your visibility a lot. It, was, it, was, it weighed about 40 kilos, is that right? Yeah, it weighed about that. I'd put on a replica before and it's bloody heavy. Now, here's something, a little bit of information most people don't know too. Anybody who's ever put on a replica helmet, the first thing you'll notice is it cuts in your collarbones like, like heck and you think, ah, how did they wear that? It must have been tough in those days. It's not how they actually wore it. If you ever see a, a picture of Ned Kelly's helmet or any of the gang's helmet, you'll see at the top, front, back, sides, there are two holes punched into the metal. Actually, wove leather straps through those, and so the weight was carried on top of their head. Oh, right. Oh, I see. So, so the, so the leather straps went over the top of your head, 
And so you kept, basically it was like wearing a big metal hat. Yes, it was because it was, it was the, the straps were woven through the top of the armor, yeah. so that your head carried the weight of it. Right. Okay. That's really quite amazing. So the whole idea was to try to be like the knights of old. That's why I always kept looking. That's sort of a throwback to the mounted knights. But my issue with that has always been they're mounted knights. That if you stay <laughs> on your horse, you're going to be fine. But if you try and wander around in big, heavy suits of armor, you, you're done, basically. And I guess that's that's a good analogy because the armor was actually designed that they could wear it on horseback. Mm. Oh, it was. Okay. It turned out that they were having to wear it in the inn when the police surprised them there. And he certainly protected them. They all walked out in the van and shot at the police, and the police shot back at them. But Meg Kelly, unfortunately, sustained some wounds in his hand straight away in the first battle, and so he couldn't load his gun properly. Then a wound in his, uh, his foot and started bleeding out very badly. And you could argue, had they been better at covering the fuller body or not making some vulnerabilities, that may have turned out a bit differently. Mm. If they'd actually maybe talked to an actual blacksmith and said, here's our plan, had blacksmiths go, eh, it's a good start, but maybe you should you know, not be so silly. From what I understand, the suspicion that they actually made a beta version, like a few months earlier, and sort of figured out where the problems were. Is that right? Well, there's certainly an evolution of the armour, and the first one is probably Joe Burns because the eyesight is really tiny. It doesn't have the same flexibility. As they went on with them, they get a bit better. And so they designed shoulder things on one, and you can see where they sit. So clearly there was an evolution in the building of them. There has been a story of their fifth suit of armour floating around, but until it emerges, we'll never know whether that's um, true or not. That's the one Tony Stark designed. That's, the, <laughs> that's that one. With um, the hydraulic arms. So, now, in all seriousness, because uh, my knowledge is obviously is not enough, did they use it more than once, or did they make it go and get killed in it, or was it used in multiple crimes? No, that was the first time it was rolled out. The, the shootout at Glen Rowan was planned to be a huge thing because the whole idea was they'd ridden to a nearby settlement and shot a former member of the gang. Aaron Sherritt, who was a collaborator with the police. A lot of discussion whether he was double-crossing the police or working with the Kelly Gang. Anyway, he got shot by them. That was meant to trigger a police train being sent up a line, and they had taken un-derailed parts of the line. The police train was to come round the bend, fall off into the, the gully. All the police would be killed by the gang. Mm-hmm. It would start a huge rebellion. So oh. that was not, not a small incident. It was underpinned by a huge amount of planning, and it was going to be a, you know, a major incident. turned out the police were very, very slow to get themselves going. The Kellys had been at Glen Rowan for 36, 48 hours, waiting, 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 without sleep, <laughs> waiting to arrive. And then the schoolmaster, Thomas Kerno, was let out of the inn where he was one of the many hostages, said his wife was sick, and he went and warned the police, ran down the line with a, a red cloth and a lamp, and the train pulled up before being derailed. Mm. They picked the rail then pulled into the station and caught the Kellys by surprise. So the police bureaucracy was what saved them. <laughs> their, their inability to leap into action. <laughs> Had the police moved quicker, things would have turned out very differently. Wow. So, Craig, with all this research you've done into the science of it and the myth, what does Ned Kelly actually mean to you personally now? Like, What, what do you think happened based on what you know? And, and how do you see Ned Kelly and the gang? I've always been a Ned Kelly fan, and I, and I guess I've always been trying to driven to rather than the myth of him, trying to find the real man behind it all. And that that key question people come back to, you know, outlaw or villain, you know, was he a criminal or was he a hero? And I think he was a bit of all of those. Mm-hmm. There are parts of his story certainly were cold blooded. There are parts of his story certainly he was persecuted and harassed by police. There were parts of his story certainly his response to that was 
considered very violent at the time. Mm. They were, and I, I think a lot of the people who have lionised Ned Kelly would probably identify with him at the time. They were hard times. They were very different times than ours, and it's very hard to look back in retrospect and, and understand the past without a ability to sample the broader social context. But I, I feel that, that Ned Kelly, from a very, very young age, was on this path, or this trajectory or pathway he was on, and he had never had the opportunity to deviate from it. It was almost a foregone conclusion, very young, that this he was heading for heading for trouble. Been in trouble. Now, if it had all gone his way, like the train had been derailed and they'd managed to kill the police, what were they trying to do? I mean, what, 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 what do you think it would have led to? Well, there's a theory they were working to set up a republic in northeast Victoria. Wow. Um, I don't know whether that's how much certainty that is and what reality and how, how long that would have stood because certainly the government would have sent in troops in big numbers against them. Nate Kelly certainly had a lot of supporters. The theory is that at Glen Rowan they had rockets set up to fire into the air to alert their co-conspirators. Wow. To hills on their horses and waiting to join in the overthrow. You have to say, though, what were they thinking? Yes, yeah. We're, we're talking here post-Eureka Stock Aid. That's... That's what I've been thinking of as well. That, that's what it was going through my head. It was post Eureka Stockade. And, I mean, the whole point of the Eureka Stockade, those don't know, of course, the miners got upset about having to pay taxes, and then the army came in and stopped it. And I just keep wondering, would that, that would happen to Ned Kelly. It's not as if there'd only be 20 s- policemen in the world. They just keep sending more and more people in. Yep. And just keep, in the end, they would have got wiped out. You can't, I mean, it sounds like I'm, you know, all for the power, but it's, you, can, you can't stop an army. In the end of the day, they're going to throw more at you. No, with a, with a small load of bandits and, and bush rangers, even if you took to the mountain ranges, mm. you're up against, you know, uh, troops in large numbers, you, your days are limited. Mm. Um, it may have been, you know, a futile gesture, but it may have been a grand futile gesture. Mm. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, it started on, you know, very similar premises. But whether they would have actually had the uptake amongst the citizenry that they expected, I don't know. So Ned Kelly's probably the most iconic because of that image of him with the bucket helmet and the armour. Did that inspire anyone else that you know of to try homemade armour against the police <laughs> or anything similar? No, the, the only case I'm aware of that really is similar is in the USA, and it's within the last two decades. Um, <laughs> aided an armoury and walked out in full body armour, including helmet and that, and stood there with high-powered rifles shooting up all the police as they arrived hmm. and making hits in the body armour and not falling over. And he outgunned them and he walked around and they had to try and shoot from helicopters and snipe at him and hit him in the feet and the legs until they could bring him down. But, but other than that, I'm not really aware of anybody because I think the perception is that the arm might have let them down. Mm, mm. That, that's my perception on it. It definitely is. He, he, all this heavy armour just seemed to kill them in the end. They couldn't get away. They couldn't, they couldn't manoeuvre with them. Yeah, and, and, you know, the 1880s and that happened in, in the next 10, 15 years, we saw in huge advances in armament. So the ability to come up with something wearable that was, you know, that would protect you. So in, in the First World War, some of the snipers had metal breastplates and metal things to try and protect them. But at that point, you know, machine gun bullets and so on, it was, it was mm. futile. If anything, it might have led to the you know, rethinking of the tank as an armament. You could move around. <laughs> um, but certainly... That's the next thing to think of. You know, what would you do if you can't wear it yourself? You sit inside it. Oh, that's a great idea. If Australia ever designs another tank, we have the Matilda, which we designed. But if you have, yep. a, we, could, we could call it the Ned Kelly. That'd be brilliant. Kelly, the round ca- thing. It would look like a tank, an actual water tank, and it would move. Oh, I'm actually more excited about the idea of an Australian-themed Dalek. <laughs> that's a good thought. That's a good thought. Yeah. The word tank. Um, has the word tank because when they had invented that first World War One tank, 
shifted over to the um, France in parts so that German spies wouldn't know what it was. They wrote on all the boxes tank. So you'd open up, see all this metal, and you'd think it's part of a tank. Oh, right. So t- <laughs> Like for storing water or something. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Tank, that's brilliant. I didn't know that. That's pretty cool. <laughs> so when does your book come out, Craig? When can people read about this fascinating story? Due to be out around about September, October next year. So it'll be a pre-Christmas present and we'll probably have a big launch down at the Old Melbourne Jail or some vicinity in November, November 11, which was the anniversary of his hang. Well, we'll, um, we'll promote it on the podcast as well when it comes a bit closer. And everyone should race out and buy Ned Kelly under the microscope. Thank you, Dr. Craig Cormick, for coming on and talking to us about this most fascinating subject. Not at all. Now, I'm, I'm determined I've got my cardboard Ned Kelly cutout helmet here to put on my head and actually read the book through that <laughs> to get you... Book. Cardboard. <laughs> Come on, we've got to. We've got to let's, get, let's let's all pull together and get Craig some sheet metal. I think so. Get, get, for, for a reading hat. <laughs> Thank you very much to Dr. Craig Cormack. Thank you. In the interview, we mentioned that Ned Kelly under the microscope comes out. September of next year. Mm-hmm. It's actually September of this year. It is because ah. we recorded it <gasps> last year. Good point. So this year in September, unless something goes wrong. September 2014 is what we're trying to say here. Yeah. Mm. I was listening to the interview and they were talking about... Good. Yeah. yeah. That's good. You never do. But I just thought uh, thought that maybe you were literally just standing there making random sounds while... Zoning out. Yeah, it's like, what... what, what, uh, Possums, possums! Sorry, sorry, doctor. Keep going, please. (laughs) But uh, he was discussing bush forges. Mm. And I was like... I bet there's more to making armour and working with metal than just hitting it with a hammer. I assume so. Turns out, quite a lot. (laughs) Thousands of years of expertise, in fact. So he was saying that a bush forge only gets up to like 700 degrees Mm. Celsius. Mm -hmm. But in order to melt metal properly, you've got to get up to like 850, which is like... 1,500 degrees Fahrenheit. Right. For our American listeners. Yeah, yeah, Fahrenheit. It's just... It's... uh, Go metric. Go metric. The the people sometimes say... The only thing I've heard about Fahrenheit, people go, oh, it more fits into the human experience. Yeah. But but that's a dumb reason to do things. It's like going, we only pick the meat because it's a a human experience. The kilogram is the human experience. And you know what? You don't need 100 degrees to differ between cold for a human Mm. and hot for a human, yep. you need five. It's quite nice. <laughs> it's a bit cold. Yes. It's a bit warm. It's too cold. It's too hot. That's right. That's all anyone ever okay. says. Humans don't really care about 35 or, or uh, 30. I mean, the difference is who gives a crap. Yeah. It's humidity, anyone. Anyway, it's humidity. Oh, just living in Queensland. I know. You sound like an old man. <sighs> no, you sound like the, the woman in an office that everyone hates. What? It's like, it's so hot. Oh, no, it's not the heat. It's the humidity. Fuck off. (laughs) Sounds like someone's got a case of the Mondays. Punch, punch, punch. (laughs) Wow. Okay, so when you heat up your metal... 700 degrees Celsius. Yep. You've got to make sure it's heated all over Mm -hmm. to the same temperature and all at the same time because you don't want distortions and changes Mm -hmm. and fluctuations through your metal. Okay, yep, yep. If you just let the metal cool down... The microstructure of the material is like blobby grains. Mm. So it's sort of like a whole bunch of corn kernels glued together, Mm. and that's what your metal looks like. But if you plunge it into water, then all those blobby grains, are it actually solidifies into needles, which makes it really hard. If you could cool it down fast enough, you could lock the metal in a solid state before it can form crystals, and it becomes an amorphous solid. 
Yeah. Do you know what an amorphous solid is? Is it no glass? Whoa, science glass! There you go. So you can melt metals into a glass-like shape or form or substance. Substance. So it's it's not glass-like. It's mm. glass. Now the glass that we see is glass mm. is silicate glass, mm. and it is an amorphous solid, but all by itself. Right. But with metal, you have to super cool it. Hang and on. So you take metals you and cool. It, you mean you can see through the metal? You can't see through it, right? But it has the structure of glass. Oh, I see. It's amorphous solid. I see, yes. and that's it, what it counts can as glass. Because you could have you could have opaque glass. Yes, of course. Yeah, I see. Black. Yeah, of course. Okay, so you can and shatter like glass. Shatters like a bitch. I see. Yes, I'm with you now. Now, in order to cool it fast enough, you have to drop it by one mega kelvin per second. Right. So you can only really do that with like seriously teeny tiny threads of it, mm. and like rush super cooled stuff past it. Yeah. And stuff. It's like a million Kelvin a second. Yes. Mm. Yeah, that's what a mega Kelvin is. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. That's, uh, uh, degrees. Yeah, that's but okay. it's very strong. Mm. So you sort of uh, probably can't do that in a bush forge. You can't. No, you can't scratch it. <laughs> right. Okay. Or, or it's hard to scratch. Mm. Uh, it has low ductility. Mm. So if you add tensile stress, snaps really easy. Yeah. Really brittle, just like glass. Right. Yep. Which can be very confusing. Mm. For instance, a, a pencil's hard, mm. but Brittle, you can snap yeah. it. Yeah. And a razor, soft, but doesn't snap. It's very ductile. Yep. Mm. In metallurgy, there's all sorts of things. There's, there's the toughness, mm-hmm. which is the resistance to fracture, yep. uh, which is your eraser. There's the hardness or resistance to deformation and scratches. Mm-hmm. There's brittleness, how likely it is to break rather than bend. Mm-hmm. Plasticity, how much it will bend and not return to its shape, like uh, you'd want for armour. Yep. Because if you got armour, you'd want, when you hit it, You'd want it to bend and absorb kinetic energy. Mm. You wouldn't want it to sort of pop back out. Right. Then that would hurt you more. Yeah, it could, maybe, yes, yeah. Whereas if you had a knife or a spring, you would want that to have a high elasticity. Sure. Because it's got to return to its original shape. So when you're bending something, it goes elasticity, elasticity, and it hits a point where it reaches its the limit of its elasticity. Yep. And so then it's permanent de- deformation. Yep, and that's... Uh, plast- it's a plasticity mm-hmm. range, right? And then it's got its fracture point, right. and that's when it snaps. Okay, All right? Yeah, okay. Some things don't scratch, but if you hit them with a hammer, they shatter. Yes. Or they can erode quickly or slowly, or they can withstand heavy loads. Mm-hmm. So there's all these different things. Yeah, there's different, but it's, yeah. it comes down to its hardness, its elasticity, and its plasticity. Right. Tempering involves softening a ferrous alloy to make it stronger and more resistant to fracturing. So you get your, like, for instance, a sword, mm-hmm. and then you heat it up to 850 all over, mm-hmm. dunk it into water, generally. You can dunk it into other stuff. Yeah. Water's a good one. Water's pretty good, yeah. Uh, the blood of your enemies. The blood of your uh, enemies, yeah. Uh, they, could work. They, used to, they did used to do that a bit. Supposedly. Maybe it's a bit of a, yeah, they say about some sort. Urine. Yeah, anything you like, yeah. Yeah, milk. Just, uh, who knows? Yeah, anything, just as long as it's If cool. you dunk it into oil, it doesn't cool as fast. Yeah. So yeah. it's sort of congeals around it. Mm. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Interesting stuff. It becomes a slurry. Mm. Uh, but yeah, dunk it into water. It goes snap. Well, not snap, but mm. yep. uh, but nice and hard. Yep, very quickly. But brittle still. So right. you hit something with it, it's going to snap. Not a good idea. No. Filled with those little needles. Mm-hmm. And so then you heat it up to the point before it me- all those needles melt again into a gooey blob. Yep. And what happens, you heat it enough so that they start to readjust their shape. Mm-hmm. 
and create a, a sort of a lattice. Right. Yeah. Okay. Inside yep. it. Orientation. That makes it, yep. Yeah. And that makes it more resistant to fracturing. Mm-hmm. So it's fairly hard. Tempering makes it slightly less hard, mm. but slightly more resistant. And that's right. the that's generally yeah. the trade off you get. Okay. Yeah. I see. Yeah. Why? Yeah. So very delicate balancing act. Now tempered glass. Quite similar. If you cool the outside of glass quickly, because mm-hmm. you, you've seen them gl- blow glass. Yes, yeah. yeah. And, it sort of, and then they let it cool down and it becomes a nice thing. Mm. What you do is you put that into water. Mm. The outside of it gets cold really quickly. The inside of it is still hot. Mm. So the outside has solidified. The inside cools down and shrinks. And what that does is it pulls in on the edges of the glass and compresses the outside of the glass, uh. which makes the outside of the glass harder. Mm. So it's actually it's under stress. Yeah, holding. And that stress is pulling it together. Right. So if you smash it, instead of creating great big blades of glass, mm. it creates those little uh, square patterns that you see uh, in safety glass. Like, on, like in your car windscreen. Yep. Uh-huh. Car windscreen or shower glass, mm. stuff like that. And that, that's because the inside of the glass is actually pulling on the outside of the glass uh, and stopping it from sort of just whizzing off. Yeah. So if you could imagine some mm-hmm. attractive sequined pants. Right. Okay. And if you would like to... I can. Tear, Definitely can. Imagine tearing them into pieces oh. quite easily. Oh. But imagine that you had legs made of thousands of rubber bands mm-hmm. that all pulled on sequins. Yes. Then they'd all sort of pull in together and form a sort of a tighter mesh. Yes. And if you tried to chop it up, then you would have like chunks of rubber band with like sequins pulled against it. Yes. So that... Did you, how long do you think you'd come up with this analogy? That sounds like a, this is a very tortured, the idea that you're I lying in your bed late at night and just going, secret pants, that's what I'm going to do. I think it's quite obvious... Oh. To the listeners, mm-hmm. I spent almost no time coming up <laughs> with that analogy. <laughs> you wouldn't think that how fast or slow you heat something changes its structure so much, but mm. it's forming crystals inside yeah, these does, materials. Yeah. That's pretty cool. So with the Ned Kelly Bush Forge, they couldn't quite make it hot enough, so they couldn't be able to make a really good armor. That would just be quite a soft. Uh, yeah, it wouldn't have very soft metal. It would have been. Yeah, it wouldn't have gotten up to the point where they could make it really hard. Yeah. Although maybe that helped them out because a softer metal would probably absorb absorb kinetic impacts from bullets a little bit more. Yeah, instead of shattering under under a lot of under the shot. Yeah. Then again, bullets back then, the little balls they fired, the musket balls, weren't that powerful. They weren't. No, they, they no. weren't likely. I mean, they could they kill you. Got a tennis racket. They said, <laughs> yeah, sorry, yeah, that, that's that might not work either. No, uh, I guess, but it's it's yeah, it's it, they weren't very strong. It was not like a bullet of today, which has a lot of energy behind it. The musket ball wasn't that energetic. Well, the they still got such him. Such a beautiful weapon. They still got him though. They still got him in the end. They got him in the end. No, he protected that bit. They got him in the foot. <laughs> You have been listening to Dan at smartenough.org. And also Greg at smartenough.org. You can catch us on Twitter at SC2KB. And also Facebook as well. And check us out in our forums, smartenough.org. Click on the big button that says archive forums. <laughs> and uh, if you're a bot, you're not welcome. Don't come, bots. And if you're a Russian bride, my email is dan at smartenough.org. <laughs> Hello, I'm Ed Cavalli, and Gregoire and Dan Beeston are smart enough to know better, as far as I can tell, and send check to my Twitter. <laughs> Test one, one, two. And you'll be able to hear him. You won't be able to hear yourself, except 
because you're talking, so it'll be in your head already. Yep. Hopefully you know what you're saying. Hopefully. Never stopped me before. Ha <laughs> ha! That's oh, the principal tenet of the podcast. So your latest book that we are very lucky to know about is called The Science of Ned Kelly? Or Ned Kelly Under the Microscope. Sorry, yes, yes, of course, sorry. Ned Kelly, yes, we'll, we'll, we'll cut that out a bit. Otherwise. The bit where you completely, completely screwed up yes, the title sh- of the book. Let's not do that. Moments after he told yes, you I know, what sorry. the book was titled. I'm full of codril right now. It's actually My... too interesting now <laughs> for me to cut it out. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, appreciate that. Um, what do you call the the... Um, oh, the political party. The oh, Greens. Sorry. No, the Greens. The, the Labour Party. No, no, no. The, the Liberal the, Party. No. The Australia First Party. No. The... Stop. <laughs> <laughs> I was um, talking to someone about uh, true crime in Brisbane. And so I said, I remember a couple of years ago, the, some guys got into this rich guy's place down the coast using wetsuits. Yeah. And assassinated this guy. And I was so amused with the idea of going, salesman, have you bought a... <laughs> totally different story. Mm. Not a totally different story. Slightly different story. Mm. Like, got, like, like, the three little pigs and something else with pigs. No, the one with the wolf. Right. Anyway, similar stories. <laughs> short and sweet, short and sweet, short and sweet. All right. Short and sweet. I it, look. It'll be short. Oh, that's good. But it'll be tart as all. F- Excellent. Good. That's what we need. 